Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Hebrews, uh, three selected passages beginning in Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4. Hear the word of our God. Therefore, we must pay close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Moving over to chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, "Vengeance, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And finally, verse 8 of chapter 13. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it is such a great salvation that you have purchased for us, and we do not want to be those who drift away in degrees. We don't want to be those who neglect uh, this great salvation. You are such a great Savior. Your person is utterly amazing, fully God and fully man, sympathetic uh, with our weaknesses and temptations. And yet even in your resurrection body now at the Father's right hand, you still bear your wounds and you still intercede there for your bride with the memory of what it means to be tempted as we are. And your promises are so great still today that everyone that the Father has given to you will come to you and not a single one who comes to you will you cast out. That that when you call out to us this morning and over us this morning, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You mean it. You still mean it. Your power as Savior is undiminished. 
this morning. You still are the one who seeks and saves the lost. Only now you do it while you're seated on a throne and after everything has been put in subjection to you. And so our expectations are high, and I ask that you would do great things this morning, that you would strengthen your people, and uh, that you would enable us in the Spirit to pay much closer attention to what we've heard about you and about the great salvation you've purchased for us. And particularly today, I want to ask that you will wield your power to bring the lost into your kingdom and that you would make this the day of their salvation. We pray in your name. Amen. Okay, I need to explain to you why we're in the book of Hebrews uh, this morning. Um, And uh, there there are a couple of reasons for it. Uh, Even though we're in a different place uh, textually uh, than we were last week, uh, we're in exactly the place we left off thematically uh, last week in Matthew 22. Um, But I thought it would be good for us uh, to, to look at these passages from Hebrews this morning uh, for a couple of reasons. And let me explain what those reasons are. First, um, I don't know about you, but since Jesus got into Jerusalem at the beginning of Matthew 21, I have just been overwhelmed by the gravity of the tone and the substance of his teaching. Uh, from the beginning of Matthew 21 all the way Uh, to where we are in chapter 22. It has felt to me, of course, Jesus is never frivolous at any point, but it has felt to me very much as though, uh, the the and I think this makes perfect sense, that the closer he gets to the cross, both the clarity of his teaching and the gravity of his teaching increase. And that makes sense to me. But it has felt very powerful to me because I have seen him uh, particularly target uh, the hearts of people. Once he gets inside Jerusalem, he he seems to be reserving special force for people who regard themselves as spiritual insiders, people who are uh, outwardly uh, going through all the right, outwardly right, you know, scare quotes around the right, religious motions, who have the right religious vocabulary, but whom Jesus just, in exchange after exchange, ends up exposing as essentially hollow, as religious phonies. And guys, we're religious insiders. We know the right vocabulary. Uh, We go through the right motions. We have at least the right stated commitments. And so when we read these passages in uh, in Jesus, that describe Jesus' teaching after he gets in Jerusalem, we don't have the luxury of saying, oh, it's so good to see you beat up on those Pharisees. Because in the providence of God, right, this, these inspired texts are speaking to us as well. And uh, so, so what my hope is this morning is the way I think about these passages from Hebrews and how they connect with where we've been in Matthew is my hope is that they're going to function for you like they have for me as kind of an extended pastoral sidebar through which we're continuing to consider the application to our own hearts of what Jesus has been teaching once he entered Jerusalem. So that's the first reason. I think it's relevant to what we've been doing in Matthew 22, but there's a more, there's a more personal reason and, and that has also lined up about the same time that Jesus entered Jerusalem, at least in terms of what we've been doing on Sunday mornings, I learned 
uh, that one of my friends, and I've shared a little bit about this with you, I learned, uh, I learned that a friend of mine had left his wife and four young children over an affair that he had begun with a woman he met through his work. And uh, this is a man who for many years uh, has uh, been sitting under the preaching of the gospel in PCA churches, a man who was in elder training, a man who knew his Bible very well, still does know his Bible very well, uh, and who I, whom I regard as very theologically literate, a man who has had uh, countless people invest in his growth, and a man who is refusing to repent, who has walked away from his Christian commitments. He signed, uh, he signed a document a couple of weeks ago acknowledging guilt and asking the elders of his church to excommunicate him. I hope, I hope that feels serious to you. It should. And so, you know, in response to that, I have uh, spoken with him and we've exchanged uh, emails and we've had conversations. Um, He's a man who, you know, outwardly, you would have looked at and said, oh, very spiritually wise and very spiritually healthy. But in reality, while he was inside the church, he was not. And he and I have had a number of conversations and exchanges, and they've been good by God's grace so far, but he's been unwilling to meet with me personally. So I decided to write him a letter. And that letter is organized around these passages from Hebrews. And what my plan is this morning is to share that letter with you. I've, t- I've tried to take out any details uh, that, that might you know, help you identify this person. If that's what you're thinking about, get your heart off of that right now. The person you need to be thinking about is you, okay? So there shouldn't be anything in this letter that would help you know or identify or talk to somebody else who would help you know who this person is. But my point in doing this is really twofold, pastorally. First, I want to protect you. I want you, like me, to be guarded by the same gospel right? I want you to be guarded by the gospel. I want you to feel the, and I want myself to feel the gravity of the gospel, the important thing that God has done in our lives. The most important thing he's done in our lives is expose us to the gospel of his son. And that same, that gospel we believe that justifies us is the same gospel that propels us in our sanctification, and it's the same gospel that will get us all the way to our glorification. So I want to protect you with that gospel. And secondly, I want to teach you this morning, uh, by God's grace, I hope to model for you one way of seeking to recover and restore someone who has been caught and ensnared by sin. So I'm going to read you this letter. My dear friend, there may be points at which I can't stay in the letter mode and just have to, you know, pounce over the pulpit. So I apologize in advance if that happens. My dear friend, I've been thinking about and praying for you a good deal this week. Last Sunday, I preached from Jesus' parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. I'm still haunted by the image of the man lacking a wedding garment whom the king orders bound and cast out of the wedding hall into the outer darkness, where Jesus says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
I can't help but think of the time we've spent together inside the wedding hall, both of us amazed and grateful beyond words that the King of Kings invitation had come to us. And now, years later, you are speaking and acting like a very different man. You say you believe you've found your true self, but I'm writing now because I believe exactly the opposite is the case. In leaving Jesus, you have left your true self. And my prayer is that among 10 billion other mercies that his heart has planned for you, the great shepherd of the sheep would be pleased to use this letter to seek and to find and to restore you to himself. I genuinely love you, and it is impossible for genuine love to be indifferent in the face of danger. I believe you are in danger, the gravest danger you could ever face, and so from love I want to warn you with the gospel to the end that your heart may, by God's grace, be warmed by the gospel into turning from your sin and into the arms of the Lord Jesus once again. And as, you see, as you'll see, I've organized the thoughts I want to share with you around four passages from where else but the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, 6, 4 through 6, 10, 26 through 31, and 13, 8. So let's, let's begin by looking at Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. These are sobering and clarifying verses, even though I can imagine you saying that they aren't relevant to you now because you've already drifted away. But I believe they are relevant to you, and massively so. Here's why. These verses present you with the God's eye view of your affair. However you think your affair began is not where or why it actually began. According to these verses... Your heart began to be persuaded as it sat under its own false preaching about your disappointments and grievances that Jesus Christ was insufficient long before you ever began to believe that your wife, your life, or even you yourself were insufficient. Drifting from your wife and kids into the arms of another woman is a symptom of a deeper, much more serious disease. Both beneath and above everything else, you drifted from the gospel. You drifted from Jesus Christ himself. This was a Christological drift long before it erupted into a sexual drift. The writer knows this is how our hearts work, and so what he urges us to do above all else is to pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Verse 1. Think about how how remarkable that is. He does not say we must pay attention to what we have heard or even we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, but we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Translation, we should never think we have enough of the gospel. 
We have to want to keep growing. We should never be satisfied with our grasp of the gospel. What protects us against drifting isn't new truth, but the same truth. The gospel we already know, we need to know even better. The same gospel that justifies us, sanctifies us, and also will glorify us. Now take note of a couple things in these verses. First, I want you to look and notice the pronouns there. I know that is predictable coming from me, but it's important here. The writer uses five first-person plurals in verses 1 through 3, we. Verse 1 does not say, therefore you must pay much closer attention to what you have heard, lest you drift away from it. No, what he says in verse 1 is, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Do you see what this, what this means? The inspired writer is placing himself under the very same warnings he's issuing to us. No professing Christian, not even the inspired writer, is exempt from the warning. No professing Christian ever outgrows on this side of glory the danger of and vulnerability to drifting away from the gospel. These warnings and exhortations are for 100% of people inside the church. They do not reflect insecurity about the gospel. They reinforce the gravity of the gospel. Secondly, I want you to notice the time frames involved in verse 1. Look at what he says there. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Did you notice that there are three we's there, all the same we, and yet all different we's at the same time. The writer's urging us to think of ourselves in our relationship to the gospel three-dimensionally, simultaneously mindful in the present of both our past and our future. The first we, he mentions, is the present we. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention. We who read the letter in the present, we who profess faith in Christ in the present, we who hear the gospel in the present, we with all of our accumulated gospel advantages and privileges, we who are presently saturated in the gospel, even and especially we must continue to pay much closer attention to the gospel. I can't help but think here of the many talented musicians I know and admire. One of their common refrains is that the more accomplished one becomes, the urgency of practicing their instrument increases rather than decreases. How could, if that's what musical maturity means, paying much closer attention to what they already know, how could gospel maturity mean anything less? The second we is the past we, to what we have heard. Stewarding the gospel in the present entails remembering how lavishly that gospel was entrusted to us in the past by God's sovereign grace. My dear friend, I urge you to remember how much that's the case in your own life. Be amazed and staggered by this fact. Although there are thousands of entirely unreached people groups on this planet remaining, you 
have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, not once, but thousands of times. You have been taught the gospel of Jesus Christ, not once, but thousands of times. You have read about the gospel, not once, but thousands of times in a Bible translated into your native tongue. And you have been discipled in the gospel by others who have sacrificed themselves to invest in your growth. It is amazing that we inhabit a universe in which such good news exists, let alone that such good news has reached you and was brought to you. Oh, I pray that God will cause you to remember the chain of gospel custody running from the heart of God in eternity all the way to your life. Consider again all that God prepared, all that he put in place, all that he accomplished in order to bring his son's gospel to you. Be staggered and amazed by this. And how many more links have been forged by the grace of God in that chain that has reached you than the writer lists in verses 3 and 4. Finally, there's the future we, lest we drift away from it. Think about the writer's sequence of thought here, standing under the gospel in the present and remembering how that gospel came to him in the past and facing the future. He sees a potential danger, a possible peril he believes every professing Christian needs to face with sober humility. It's the danger of drifting away from the gospel unless that gospel is held tight and cherished in the present. All of us, and I include myself here, need to be sober and humble enough to read ourselves into rather than out of that warning. Anything less than this is both arrogant and ignorant at the same time. Arrogant because we believe wrongly that it could never happen to us, and ignorant because we reveal that we don't understand the danger of indwelling sin that remains in us. The image of drifting is very instructive. Our hearts are always in motion, and people do not typically make what Paul calls the shipwreck of their faith in 1 Timothy 1.19 in one fell swoop. Spiritual disaster ordinarily doesn't befall us suddenly, but gradually incrementally, step by step, and degree by imperceptible degree, such that we're lulled into a false sense of security and the prideful misperception that whatever veering off course we're honest enough to acknowledge remains manageable. I think here of the destruction that came to David and so many others from his drifting on the palace roof, or the autopsy report of the sluggard's field given to us in Proverbs 24. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Little drifts, unchecked and uncorrected by the gospel, will add up to disaster. So let's pause now and heed the writer's counsel and pay much closer attention to what we've both heard And I can think of no better summary to focus our attention on than the one the writer gives us in Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Notice that he's urging the same three-dimensional mindset on us here 
as he did in chapter 2, verse 1. The past, yesterday. The present, today. And the future, forever. In, two, in chapter 2, verse 1, he wanted us to think of ourselves in light of those time dimensions. But here, he's urging us to consider Jesus and his gospel three-dimensionally. What binds the past, the present, and the future together? What's the great foundation undergirding and upholding them? What's the great logic unifying them? According to the writer in chapter 13, verse 8, the great content filling up the past, present, and future and bringing them together as a coherent whole is the breathtaking, kingdom-building, sinner-redeeming sameness of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the same. Not for a season, but for all seasons. Not for an age, but for all ages. We celebrate novelty and decry its opposite as monotony. But Jesus Christ celebrates his sameness because he delights to demonstrate the stability and predictability of his own heart. He delights to be found, discovered and rediscovered over and over and over again by his people as the rock on whom they may rest securely for all eternity. We are restless and want endless options. But the heart of Jesus Christ overflows with joy at the opportunity to be and prove himself the same for his people today as he was yesterday and as he will be forever. As your own experience proves so painfully, we are up and down, in and out, backwards and forwards, hot and cold, anything but the same. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And my dear friend, it is Jesus Christ's cosmos-renewing sameness that summons you to repentance and faith today, just as he did for the first time many years ago. His sameness calls you to repent for the obvious and devastating reason that you have proven you are not like him. You are not the same. You have been willing to walk away from, to break, and to repudiate sacred promises and vows to God, to your bride, to your children, and to your church, just as eagerly as you once made those vows. Unlike Jesus Christ, you have been inconstant and unstable. You have not been the same today as you were yesterday, but take heart, my friend. The foundation of the gospel's power in your life was never your stability. It was never your sameness. It was always and only about his. The sameness of Jesus Christ offers you as a sinner shelter yet again today. Yes, even you, after all you have done. How could this be? Because after all he has done, there remains an eternally stable shelter for even the worst of sinners. Do you remember 1 Timothy 1 15 and 16. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience 
as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The fact that Jesus is the same today as he was yesterday means that that you, yes, even you, can and must look to the cross yet again. You must measure your present opportunity before him according to his past demonstrated willingness to give himself up for you there. Think of it. When you were his enemy, the holiest heart ever to beat in a human breast was willing to bleed itself out for you in order to make an eternal shelter for sinners just like you. And I delight to remind you that he is the same today. But make no mistake, this is not an opportunity you should assume you can hold in your back pocket until you feel, quote-unquote, ready to repent or until repentance becomes, quote-unquote, attractive to you. Repentance is objectively necessary regardless of whether or not it subjectively looks or feels attractive to you. Repentance is an opportunity whose boundaries are determined by none other than God himself, and those boundaries are not open for negotiation. Lest you take false comfort from assuming that repentance will always be a possibility, an available option to you. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. And friends, this was not one of your, not one of the texts that Don read, but it's on page 1003 in the Pew Bible. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Whatever else these verses teach us, they make it frighteningly clear that for a certain class of people who by God's grace once were inside the church and near to the gospel and yet have repudiated their previous Christian profession, repentance does become impossible at some point. I urge you to take seriously what these verses declare. There is a line on the other side of which is the place of no return, where it becomes impossible to repent. It's enough for God to tell us and for us to know that this line exists, even if we don't know precisely where or when it is. It should be enough for us to know that he knows where it is. The cross should be enough to keep us as far away as possible from it. We must never be at peace with or tolerate spiritual decline or backsliding. Why not? Because the backslider's path and the apostate's path are the same path. The only difference between the two is that the apostate is farther down that road and has reached the point where his heart has been so hardened by sin's deceitfulness that he cannot and he will not turn around. That point, by the way, is unmarked and has no sign like last exit before full apostasy. Sin deceives us by assuring us that we can interrupt or pause in our perseverance. 
without destroying it, that we can manage the sin in our lives, that we can indulge and recover, and that God will forgive us on our schedule. But Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, remind us that we must turn at the earliest opportunity before it becomes too late, and I pray that you will. The final passage I ask you to think about with me carries the logic of your recent decisions against the will of Christ forward to show us what their ultimate consequences will be unless you repent and turn back to Christ in the power of the gospel. And I'm referring to Hebrews 10, verses 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is an unsettling portrait. Let's begin at the end with verses 30 and 31. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In context, the writer is describing the future that awaits someone just like you who has walked away from Jesus Christ from the inside of the church and doesn't ultimately repent as I and many others have been pleading with you and praying for you to do, unless you repent, my dear friend, this portrait will become your portrait. And you will be brought face to face, not merely with the debris field of your own ruined conscience, but inescapably with the living God himself, before whom you face a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries, and from whom you will have earned a much worse punishment than the one who has set aside the law of Moses. Why so serious? Well, there are three reasons given in verse 29 that I plead with you to take seriously. First, like the person being described in the portrait in verse 29, like them, you are rejecting the person of Jesus. Verse 29 reads, having trampled the Son of God. Think about that image. We trample on what we think worthless. Remember what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. By your actions thus far, you are declaring that you've found Jesus Christ no longer good for anything 
except to be thrown out and trampled under your feet. Facing your disappointment in yourself and your disappointment in your marriage and your disappointment in your wife, your heart has weighed Jesus Christ in the balance over against the stolen water of your adultery and the betrayal of your family, and your heart has found him wanting Your heart has concluded self-destructively that the pearl of greatest price is no longer even worth your heart's pocket change. But know this, God does not share your low view of his son's true worth. And unless you repent, you face only the future described in verses 30 and 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. To reject Jesus, to trample upon him, is to reject and trample upon the very mercy of God in its fullest, loveliest, and mightiest expression. This is not the path to flourishing. It is the path to perishing. Secondly, like the people being described in verse 29, you're rejecting the death of Jesus. In other words, you're rejecting both the necessity and the power of the cross. This is what the writer means in verse 29 when he says that the one he is describing has, quote, unquote, profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Think about this, my friend. The cross you once turned to for cleansing and pardon, the cross you once boasted in and sung about, you are now counting irrelevant and impotent. And it is not because the cross has changed. Know this, God does not share your low view of his son's cross. Remember, the curses threatened in these verses were experienced by Jesus personally as the substitute sin bearer for his people. All his incarnate life, his heart anticipated and aimed itself toward that very fearful expectation of judgment and that fury of fire that would consume the adversaries. Verse 27, on the cross, he didn't fall, but he walked willingly into the hands of the living God. And it was into the most fearful prospect ever endured as his father unleashed and paid out his holy and perfect vengeance to Jesus for the sins of his people. On the cross, the Lord kept his promise to judge his people by judging Jesus in the place of his people, treating and regarding him as his greatest adversary instead of his greatest advocate. The Jesus who warns you today about the fury and vengeance of God does so from within his own personal experience. This means that the cross possesses real power, exactly the power you need. Earlier in the same chapter, in verse 14, the writer celebrates the unchanging power and relevance of the cross. He tells us that for by a single offering, he, meaning Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. While you are presently looking away from the cross as impotent and as irrelevant, God 
and his heart are still looking upon it as the place where his justice against the worst of sinners has already been fully satisfied and where his love for the worst of sinners has already been fully displayed. Fleeing from the cross of Christ will never free you from your sins. When you walk away from the cross, you walk away from the only thing standing between you in your sinfulness and God in his holiness. If you remain on this path, you will not flourish. You can only perish. Finally, like them, in verse 29, you are mocking the grace of the Holy Spirit. This is the last element in the profile that the writer sketches for us in verse 29. Outraged, the Spirit of grace. The word that the ESV translates as outraged here could also be rendered as insulted or mocked. But whichever we choose, the point remains the same. Your actions up to this point are a personal affront to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. An offense even more serious than your breach of trust toward your wife and your children. Why do I say this? Because none of your knowledge of Christ and his gospel is actually your knowledge. All the knowledge of Christ you've ever possessed and still possess, intellectually and experientially, every single aspect of it, no exceptions, is the gift of the Holy Spirit to you. Look at verse 26 again. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, receiving as in a gift all your knowledge of the gospel, is the Holy Spirit's gift to you. He is the spirit of grace after all. You didn't acquire ownership of it as your achievement, but he entrusted it to you as a matter of stewardship. So you are not free to do with this knowledge of Christ and his gospel whatever you wish, but only what he wishes you to do with it. Think of the numberless times and ways in which the Holy Spirit, yes, the spirit of grace, has displayed Christ and his benefits to you. Remember all the times you celebrated the Lord's Supper and received the elements. Remember how frequently, how compellingly he has displayed Christ and his benefits to you. How many times he has persuaded your heart not only of the reality but of their beauty and how often and how deeply you have felt in the past their power within your soul. And now in this very different season of your life, though your stated desires have changed, his have not. Oh, my dear endangered friend, while you mock him and insult him and yes, even outrage him by your actions, this same Spirit of grace is at this very moment holding the same Jesus Christ out to you yet again, proclaiming him and spreading out for your heart to behold the inexhaustible beauty of his glorious sameness to you. He does this to lead you out of danger, to mark the way to safety for you, and yes, to bring you back home where you belong. And before your rejecting hardens into rejection, remember yet again, Jesus Christ 
is the same yesterday and today and forever. And no matter how far into the far country you have wandered, his sameness is your way home. And I pray you'll turn and take it today as long as it is still called today. Love in Christ, Mike. Let's pray. We pray for this man now. That when he receives this letter, that even against his will, he would read it. And that as he reads it, you would show yourself to him. And that you would be pleased to rescue him. Use whatever you want to use, however you want to use it, apart from with, even against the mistakes in this letter, however you want to do it, what we're asking for is that your name would be glorified in the rescue of this man. And for ourselves, we also pray that we would be a people who heed these warnings, who pay much closer attention to what we've heard because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And we pray in his name. Amen.